This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show that goes behind the headlines and explores issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mukhtar. Thousands of Malaysian households rely on foreign domestic workers, the majority of whom are women. But they aren't actually recognized as workers under Malaysian employment laws. A recent Malaysia Kini special report looks at the dilemma that domestic workers face when they are forced to flee their workplace for government or NGO-run shelters. To shed some light on the situation is Alia Al-Hajri, journalist at Malaysia Kini, who authored the report. Alia, good morning. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Your report is titled Trapped in Shelters, Domestic Workers' Dilemma, and it looks at a segment of migrant labor that is essential in our community. Before we go into the particulars of your report, help me understand the way domestic workers are viewed under Malaysian labor labor laws. In what way is the treatment of domestic workers different from other migrant labor? Well, they are not recognized as workers under our labor laws. Um, And that doesn't just apply to migrant workers, but domestic work in general. That means local domestic workers are also not recognized under our Employment Act. And I just found out like not too long ago that this uh, domestic work include things like uh, gardeners, drivers, um, babysitters, basically people who are employed in a household, right? So all of this are classified as informal work under the Employment Act, which under the, um, what was it they called? Basically, there are exemptions under the Employment Act that says domestic work are not protected, which means they are not uh, all the things like minimum wage, um, mandatory rest day, whatever benefits under the Employment Act does not, um, it's not applicable to domestic work. So these include both migrant and local. I didn't quite realize the list of work covered under this exemption is so extensive. Is there a rationale for the law to work in this way? I would have to say I do not know because the Employment Act has been around since, what, 1955, right? And uh, so I don't know how it started and how, what was the rationale that domestic work is basically not considered as work. Because we can assume that in the 50s, 60s, they didn't employ migrant uh, workers. Lah. It was like mostly our locals were working in households, right? Um, and then even in, we, they were recently tabling the amendments to the Employment Act in Parliament. I think it was eventually postponed, though, like the final reading for the amendments, they postponed it to the next session, which is beginning in March. So even then, under the proposed amendments, they did not, uh, what they did, as far as I understand, they only changed from domestic servant to domestic employee. That's literally what they're doing. They're just changing the term, but none of the not providing anything else beyond that. They're still listed under that exemption. So long as those exemptions are still there, uh, domestic work are still not recognized as work. I see. And hence, domestic workers don't receive the full range of employee protections because of this exemption. Coming back to your story, you reported about a shelter at the Indonesian embassy in Kuala Lumpur that helps domestic workers with their problems. What are the circumstances that drive people to leave their workplace and seek help from the shelter? Well, based on my, based on the 
interview I did with the counselor at the embassy who ran the shelter, there are various reasons uh, how the domestic workers end up in their shelter. Um, one, the most common would be they um, manage to escape um, their employer and make their way to the shelter through their own connections, either through friends or through in other means. So they approach, they manage to contact um, the embassy, basically. The embassy also has a hotline for Indonesian citizens working here that uh, the workers can um, call in with any complaints or report. And I believe there would be some kind of like rescue mission if needed. Um, and then the smaller number of how they ended up there would involve a collaboration with uh, Malaysian authorities. For example, the embassy would receive a complaint from a neighbor of the said employee or a friend of the employee and told them that there's this uh, worker, there's this woman um, employed in a household and then they believe that this person is caught in an exploitative condition and so they are asking help for this person to be rescued. So the embassy can reach out to our authorities, to our police, um, and basically the police together with the labor department or the immigration department, they can mount a rescue mission, if you want to put it that way, and basically get the worker to the embassy. Uh, and the reasons that they ran away is very, uh, it can be anything, it can be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. How well known is the embassy shelter within the migrant community? Does this shelter tend to be the first avenue to seek help um, for Indonesian domestic workers? I guess it depends on who you ask because I have talked to um, migrant workers, activists on the ground who said that the facilities are actually not that well known um, because according to them, for example, like this, let's take an example of this girl who came from like this remote part of Indonesia to Malaysia. Uh, she wouldn't be told like on departure that, hey, if you run into any trouble, you can, you know, contact the embassy to try and find shelter. La, la, la. No, they wouldn't be informed of that. And then assuming that they came in and then uh, it's their first employment and then they immediately got caught in a bad situation, they wouldn't know who to turn to, right? And there are a lot of situations where, for example, they are not allowed to basically leave. They're not allowed to have handphones to communicate. So they wouldn't have um, any access to other workers who are already here who can inform them. So they wouldn't know. But if they have access to any form of uh, consular services or anything of that sort, they would be aware that at the embassy, there is this shelter. Mm. What about other shelters? I mean, what other shelters provide help for domestic workers in trouble? As far as I know, uh, there are NGO-run shelters. So, the Naganita is one of the most established, but there are also other um, smaller, I guess, uh, migrant-run NGOs uh, operating in Kuala Lumpur and perhaps out of state as well. I'm not sure about that, but they have their networks of um, migrant workers uh, that I suppose, um, I mean, the embassy also has representations in Johor, in Penang, and in Sabah, I believe. 
the consular. So in Kuala Lumpur, it's the embassy, and then they have the consulars in the other states. So um, the NGO shelters, and I also recently discovered that our welfare department also shelters uh, rescued workers, but they wouldn't tell me how many uh, workers they have rescued, or they wouldn't give out like any um, any numbers at all. Mm. I was so going to ask about that, that, whether the government themselves have shelters or if those shelters are like detention facilities. Apparently, it's not detention. It's, apparently, it's like welfare department uh, shelter homes. And as far as I understand, this is for um, those that the government rescued. And then uh, these women are believed to be suspects. No, not suspects. Victims of human trafficking. So they would be involved in... They would have to stay in there to be witnesses, I guess. Uh, for example, if the employer is charged for alleged uh, human trafficking under the Tipsom Act, they would be placed in government shelter. I'm speaking to Malaysia Kini journalist Alia Al-Hajri on her special report covering the plight of foreign domestic workers. We'll be back with more after the break. BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. I'm speaking to Alia Al-Hajri, journalist at Malaysia Kini, about her recent special report, Trapped in Shelters, Domestic Workers' Dilemma. We're discussing the difficulties faced by foreign domestic workers who are caught in bad employment situations and are forced to flee to shelters. Alia, what recourse are domestic workers hoping for when they go to these shelters? Uh, they have options. I'm not sure how the option was present, well, will be presented to them, but uh, the main aim is usually A, uh, they want to go back. And then second, for those with uh, wages, uh, unpaid wages due to them, uh, the processors will be ongoing to try and get as much of their money back as possible. Uh. So that can be done through the uh, embassy's engagement with our labor department, uh, through the labor court, or through uh, mediation with the employer. That means they will contact the employer and then they will say, hey, look, pay up or else kind of thing. Uh, and then they can, uh, I guess the worst case for everyone involved would be um, to take it to court. Uh, and it's the worst case because it'll be the longest uh, process. Uh, that's how some of them ended up in there for like two, three years. And it is through no fault of their own because the cases can just be postponed and postponed mm. and they can't do anything about it. Mm. So... What's yeah. what's the success What's the success rate like if they decide to take their case to court? Um, are they will they do they typically eventually get what they're due or or does it sometimes just end up with nothing? To be honest, I don't know. Uh, I am not sure of the success rates or like how much uh, you know what's like the most uh, domestic worker has ever managed to get their money back, kind of thing. Mm. What about for undocumented workers? Is it a lot more difficult to have their cases heard by legal authorities? Definitely, because uh, again, through the interviews and like, past experiences, um, especially cases that are handled by Tenaganita, they discovered that if you take an undocumented worker to the labor court and you try to get their wages from the labor court, the labor court will say they do not have the... Uh, duty or the power to hear a case um, filed by an undocumented migrant. So then 
tenaga Nita took this one particular case to the High Court and then uh, eventually the High Court said the Labour Court must hear the claims and then the employer of this said uh, worker who filed the claim filed an appeal against the High Court High Court's decision. So that decision, that appeal is still pending. And so this process has been going on for like 2017 to 2021, I think. So the four years. And this particular uh, woman who filed the claim already recently went back because she was like, enough is enough already. But the case is still ongoing. So the High Court will still hear that appeal to decide whether the Labour Court should hear this claim by an undocumented worker or Then, once the case go back to the Labour Court, there's still no guarantee that she's going to get uh, her claims because she needs to prove that she has been working for this uh, employer for this amount of time and then trying to claim for like 30 plus thousand for like four plus years of work, I think. Mm-hmm. How do people find themselves in the position of being undocumented? Uh, I think a popular perception seems to be that they chose to come without proper papers. But is that actually the common scenario? There are various ways that they can become undocumented. Um, They can, once upon a time, they can come in here as a tourist. That means they came here on a social visit pass. Uh, That means they don't need to do anything. They just come. And then they uh, went to the employer. And then the employer is supposed to process their documents to turn their social visit pass into uh, employment pass, right? So if the employer did not do that, even though the employer promised that you just come first, and then I will process it for you. If the employer didn't promise, that means she's undocumented. She doesn't have the right document to work. And there are a lot of cases that happen that way. And then there are also cases where the worker came in through legal means. Uh, she has all her uh, work permit, she has her everything, and then she came. She works with an employer, and then the employer keeps her documents, keeps her passport, keeps her work permit, keeps her everything. And then after a certain period of time, maybe the employer did not renew her permit as they were supposed to do. And then the employer kept their passport, kept their permit, which means the moment they permit lapse, they are undocumented. Lah. And then when they eventually escape, they will escape empty because they don't have, they physically don't have their documents anymore. So that's true. And then there are also cases where the woman came in through fake documents, fake in the sense that from their source country, for example, to work here as a domestic helper, you need to be minimum, I think, 18 years old. But there are cases where they left their villages at like 16 or 17. But when they make their passport over there, uh, they they fake their identity. Like they push their age to like 18 or something. And then they came and then they eventually like get into trouble. So they would have like problems with their documents and eventually they can end up undocumented. So I'm not sure whether it's like the popular belief or not, but you don't actually come in. I mean, it happens, but you don't, the cases where they actually try to come in uh, through the, or your jalan tikus, your boat, 
that's actually the minority. Most of them came through like proper ways through the airport immigration. Um, and yeah, those that do sneak in through the borders, I guess it happens, but it is actually in the minority. How much sway does the Indonesian government have to ensure that Indonesian domestic workers are treated fairly? There's an MOU between Malaysia and Indonesia that is due to be renewed. Do you know how discussions are going on this? I mean, I guess you can look at it in a few ways. One, if we want to think that they have a lot of clout, they could have exercised their clout like a long, long time ago, right? The memorandum of understanding that is supposed to be signed in like January or something, that was first signed, I think, in like 2006 and then 2011 and then 2016. They could have put in whatever uh, protection they wanted like at that time. Uh, and if I remember correctly, under the current uh, memorandum of understanding that expired in 2016, there are already protection clauses. For example, an employer is not supposed to retain a worker's passport. And this whole employer cannot retain a worker's passport is actually in a passport, in already in our Passport Act. So even without any MOU, it's already a crime for another individual, regardless of worker, employer, or whatever, to retain another person's passport. But obviously, it is not uh, enforced. And then uh, an employer is supposed to create a bank account for their worker, be it domestic worker or migrant worker or whatever worker, and the salary is supposed to be banked in. So obviously, that doesn't in a lot of cases. In terms of new protection that's being discussed under the upcoming MOU, uh, the Indonesian Manpower Minister said there will be a term, a clause for social protection. That means it's also, and I'm not sure the EPF, but definitely SOPSO. So an employer of an Indonesian domestic worker has to make SOPSO contributions. Uh, that's an additional uh, protection. We can say that they are trying to push for something. I'm not exactly sure what because they say, okay, if Malaysia wants 32,000 uh, Indonesian workers to work in our plantations, you better sign our MOU first. You have to sign this domestic workers MOU first. Then only I will let you have 32,000 more workers to work in the plantations, which is why we are very interested to get the MOU signed fast because obviously we are more interested in the plantation workers than the domestic workers. Um, but how far is Indonesia willing to use their card? I don't know. Mm. We just have Earlier, we spoke about the gaps in the Employment Act. There's also a proposal for a separate law governing domestic workers. Is this a viable solution? That is what is being pushed by the NGOs, Tenaganita, uh, Sahabat, Kesatuan Sahabat Wanita and all your wanita-wanita groups and migrant workers groups, they have been trying to push for that for a long time. It's been an ongoing uh, initiative for them. I know that they have been saying, um, because MOUs are not binding, right? Bilateral agreements are not legally binding. So in order to have something that is legally binding, that's why they're proposing for a separate act because an act is law and an MOU is not law. But considering that we have actually existing acts that are not being enforced, so I don't know how 
optimistic we can be that a separate act is not just going to be another act on paper. I think. Very quickly, Alia, in the little time that we have, what are the developments you'll be looking out for on foreign labour this year? Um, definitely the implementation of the MOUs. So um, I'm waiting for the signing of the Malaysia Indonesia MOU to see like whether they are like improved terms or what are the conditions and all that. And also implementation of the Malaysia uh, Bangladesh recruitment MOU. We want to see how many agencies are involved in the process and like who's making money from the process, who's losing money from the process, who is eventually uh, paying or covering the cost and things like that because a lot of these agreements involve money, basically. So there would be some parties profiting from it and who are they connected to because that's usually a big part of it. And yeah. Thanks very much, Alia, for speaking with me today. And I look forward to catching up with you on these issues in the future. Thank you so much. I've been speaking to Alia Al-Hajri, journalist at Malaysia Kini on Pressing Matters. Stay tuned for the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.